Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm your host, Ben Craven. Uh, Today's podcast is all about the Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act, better known as the Triple CFA. We've seen in the media that the Triple CFA is affecting a lot of banks and in turn first home buyers, but they're not the only ones affected. Today, my colleague, Dr. Oliver Hartwich, and I are joined by the Executive Director of the Financial Services Federation, Lynn McMorrin. Lynn, Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, Ben. Lynn, why has the government introduced the Triple CFA? What was their rationale? It was the changes that came into force on the 1st of December last year were introduced by Chris Farfoy when he was Minister of Commerce and Consumer Affairs because he had the belief that there was still harm being caused to vulnerable consumers by irresponsible lending and people were getting themselves into unmanageable debt. He believed that he was seeing evidence of this in his electorate at the time, which was mana, and even amongst his own whanau. And I think that that there is some truth to the fact that there were still harmful lending practices going on prior to these changes. Nowhere near to the extent that is being uh, talked up by the current minister, Dr Clark, who is talking about the fact that the harm being caused to vulnerable consumers was widespread. And we're hearing a bit of that narrative from some of the consumer organisations as well. We don't believe for a second that it was widespread. When you look at the amount of lending that goes on in New Zealand in any one year, uh, the numbers of people in hardship are minute compared to uh, the overall amount of lending that takes place. So, yes, if there was harm being caused, and we believe that there probably was by some irresponsible lenders, we believe that the problem didn't necessarily lie with the law. It lay with the fact that the existing law, which prohibits lending to people who can't afford to make the repayments, that was not being enforced properly by the regulator, the Commerce Commission. Okay. Your members include everyone from credit unions and building societies through to the finance arms of car manufacturers. What effect is the triple CFA having on them? The new changes to the law affect every lender and every single consumer who is looking for for credit. So if you want to purchase a motor vehicle, you will have to go through the same process as you would do if you were approaching a bank for a housing loan. If you want to purchase an appliance um, for a new washing machine, for example, um, from you know one of the appliance stores, you still have to go through this process of extremely intrusive questioning into what you do with your money, your expenses and, and your expenditure. So it's quite quite a forensic approach. Extremely granular. Right. Yeah. Can, um, can you actually give us an example? What would you have to go through if you try to finance a washing machine or a laptop or not? So, for example, the, the law applies to every lender, So, uh, and the, the, the regulations around the affordability assessment, which is the piece of the puzzle that we particularly find problematic, expects that the lender will look at your fixed outgoings, so things like your rent, your insurances, electricity, those sorts of things, other debt that you might have, etc. And then look at all your other discretionary expenses and determine whether or not there is still an ability for you to um, afford the loan. So for example, you know, if, you, if the rest of your income goes on things like savings and then you spend something on takeaways or you go out for dinner or whatever, you've got to take all of that into account as well. And then on top of that, the lender is expected to also put a reasonable surplus or buffer on top of that to allow for the fact that you the, the consumer might have underestimated their expenses or overestimated their income, even though you've actually got all the details of their expenses and income in front of you because you've probably got several pieces of paper, including most of their bank statements. 
Sounds like a lot of compliance. Oliver, you must be hearing similar things from members of the New Zealand Initiative as well. Yes, certainly. I hear that from our members in financial services and banking that they are noticing a change now in the amount of loans they are still giving out because of the complexities. And it's certainly not restricted to our members, the big banks in this country, but to, as Len said, any lender um, facing this regulation. And of course, if you're a consumer and you know that you have to go through this process, many applications simply wouldn't be made. It's not just that existing applications would be slowed down and become onerous and might be declined. It's actually that if you're a consumer and you know you have to go through this every time you want to apply for something, maybe to finance your next washing machine or car, then you would be cautious and you would probably already reduce your demand for credit. So it's obviously quite frustrating for customers, but can we get any sort of better idea of what is at stake for companies that wittingly or unwittingly breach a triple CFA? The law now has penalties that apply directly to the individuals and in, in lending institutions who are senior managers or directors. So there are penalties up to $200,000 per person for breaches of the Act. And that is now a liability that the directors and senior managers can't insure or indemnify themselves against. So they have that personal liability. Wow. So it's pretty obvious why they're, they're having quite a cautious approach Absolutely, that's the only thing that they can do. You know, there has been discussion, the Minister has come out and said that, you know, it could well be that um, lenders are interpreting the, or they're taking the interpretation too far of these new regulations. We don't believe that you can possibly misinterpret the regulations. They are so prescriptive and so, and written so clearly uh, that there is no room for misinterpretation. And as I say, the personal liability just is so onerous that nobody is going to take the risk of having any sort of judgment in the credit process at all. Apart from the economic effects, I mean, there are civil liberty effects as well. I mean, do you really want to strip bare every time you want to buy a new car and then tell them exactly how you spend your life, where you spend your money, and tell them um, which bars you go to and um, what your favourite pastimes are? I think actually from that perspective, this is frightening because you completely have to reveal everything about yourself for every purchase, larger purchase that you make. I totally agree, Oliver, and there is is obviously privacy issues around that as well. Coming back to your point there, Lynn, about the law being very prescriptive uh, and very clear in the way that it was written, I understand that uh, many of the banks made submissions, they they gave the, the government ample sort of warning about what effect this would have on them. Did your members do the same? Oh, absolutely. We submitted on behalf of our membership. Um, Some of our members submitted individually. We have warned all the way through that consultation process that access to credit would be inhibited by these new new rules, and it's exactly what's happened. I can't say that the consultation process didn't include or give us plenty of opportunity to, to have our say. I think what I could say is that we were not listened to. Right. And I think that's to do, it goes back to that widespread belief or this the belief that the widespread harm was being caused to consumers. We don't think that there is any evidence whatsoever to suggest that the harm was widespread. Actually, from the draft that you consult, were consulted on to the final product, did the government take any of your concerns, I mean, even slightest concerns, into consideration and change things? I think where we landed was slightly better than where we first started. There was an expectation that every loan would require three months' worth of bank statements and you know granular process to, to assess those. There is room for the use of benchmarks, depending on ensuring that they are appropriate and relevant. 
um, but there's still this requirement to also put a buffer across everything as well. There is there is one exception in the in the regulations that if it's obvious to the lender that the person can afford the credit without experiencing substantial hardship, that they don't have to go through this process. But one of the things that lenders now have to do is do an annual report to the Commerce Commission on the amount of lending that they're doing. And one of the data points that they've got to provide is the number of times that they use that exception. And the Responsible Lending Code, which provides guidance to lenders on how you interpret the law, states that that is a very high test to be able to use that exception and talks about a person on a $300,000 income applying for a $10,000 credit card, as an example. So the exception is something that you can't rely on. If the law was so black and white, if it was so so clear, and yourself and other, other industries um, have made submissions against it, do you think it was just the government's intention, or do you think they've made a mistake with this, with this piece of legislation? I don't believe that they see that they've made a mistake. We think that they have. Yeah. Um, we think that they've gone far too far. And, you know, inhibiting access to credit at the moment during a pandemic when, you know, spending is down anyway is, is probably the wrong thing to do. In Australia, they're looking at winding back their prescriptive lending laws because they believe that credit helps um, oil the wheels of the economy. And we, we would tend to agree with that. But what we're doing is obviously we've gone in the opposite direction. Oh, that's incredible. Okay. Uh, and... Oliver, both yourself and Lynn have been uh, in your in your current roles for about what a, a decade. A decade, right? Okay, a decade. How how have you both seen um, policy making change in that time? Oh, um, from the initiatives perspective, I can tell you that when we started, um, about eighty percent of our time and our research was um, spent on coming up with new ideas for existing policy problems and just going into the typical kind of long think tank report and series of reports, uh, actually developing generally novel ways of approaching problems. And only 20% was roughly responding to whatever the government did. That has completely changed. I think it's probably the other way around now. We hardly have time for that kind of blue sky thinking because the government is keeping us so busy with just responding to all the stuff they are throwing at us on a daily basis. wonder whether it's a similar experience. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> completely. Very reactive in terms of just responding and you know, going back to this triple CFA process, going through the, the, those changes, there were there were times when um, the government actually introduced a new piece to the law that they that wasn't already you know in play that we had already s- submitted on, and literally gave people like twenty four hours or forty eight hours to respond. In wow. some cases, they didn't even consult with us. Um, so, for example, late in the piece, the select com- in the select committee process, there was an interest and fees cap placed on high-cost lenders. Now, we didn't necessarily object to that, but we weren't consulted on it. And it was only purely by accident I happened to speak to somebody who told me that the consultation was open, that, that we were able to submit on it at all. Right, so the pace of change has really increased, but the way in which policy is being developed has changed considerably as well. It appears to be on the hoof. And as I said before, I think, you know, we are consulted, we are given the opportunity to submit, but I do think that our concerns need to be listened to. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes I have a feeling that they don't even consult properly anymore. Anyway, I hear that from members a lot, that they are struggling to even get into ministers' diaries. I hear that, by the way, not just from the business community, but even from charities. So one of our members told me that a charity that uh, they sponsor has complained to them that they don't have access to the minister anymore. This, I won't name them. 
but it's a very well-known charity and uh, there's nothing controversial about the charity, but even they can't get into the relevant minister's diary. It seems to me that the beehive is basically talking to itself and outsiders find it incredibly hard to get in. And then, of course, the experience of um, business leaders also then, when they're lucky to engage with ministers directly, it's hardly worth their time because they don't really get through with their concerns anyway. So what I heard from a number of um, top CEOs in the country is actually that they've completely given up. They are not even seeking meetings with ministers anymore because they think they're basically pointless. Right, so the process with the triple CFA is uh, becoming increasingly typical for policy making, I suppose. Well, we've, we've been here, of course, in this podcast studio last year to talk about this very similar kind of uh, regulation um, that came with the fee-bait scheme. So um, same, a similar kind of story, policy developed on the hoof, just dumped on you, you've got two days to respond, and then just see how you deal with it. And then they're surprised that they're getting bad press out of these regulations afterwards. And going to some sort of re- uh, review as well. Mm. Uh, so th- that raises a good point. Um, I guess aside from fee bait and the triple CFA, uh, what what other issues is your industry facing? Same as a lot of others. Um, rising cost of funds, so rising interest rates, rising inflation, rising wage costs, um, concern about con- coronavirus and what that's going to mean if, if workforces come down with it. Are we or are we not a, an essential service? Um, and, and, you know, there's a good argument to say that financial services is an essential service. Uh, you know, you can't staff your call centres to help people calling through to say, you know, I'm in hardship with my loan, I need help. Um, if you can't get people to, to work, um, we have leasing, fleet leasing provider members. So most of the government vehicles, including emergency services vehicles, are leased by one of our members. And you know, as an example, they lease to corporates and all sorts of people. But you know, being able to swap out a vehicle because it's broken down or whatever, so that they can get back on the road, you know, that is, in our view, an essential service. But it's not terribly clear about who is and who isn't, and who needs to go on this register and have access to rapid antigen tests and all of those sorts of things. So yeah, um, a lot of the concerns of business are, are the same for our members as they are for others. But you know, there are these extra layers of compliance that just make things so so difficult to actually do business. Is there any, anything else you would add to that as well, Oliver, from members uh, of the initiative in the financial sector too? Yeah, and, and not just the financial sector. I hear that from members across sectors. They're all concerned about, for example, now increasing the minimum wage 6%, potentially introducing a, a social unemployment insurance before the election, which will cost us another 3% basically of income tax. And that's just the start, of course. So members are concerned that at this time when the economy is fragile, when we are concerned about um, cost of living, inflation, rising interest rates, a stuttering economy, a very tight labour market, cost pressures on the employment side, actually availability of staff being a problem, Mm. we are making it even harder for businesses to operate in these circumstances by actually increasing the cost of doing business and the complexity of doing business in New Zealand. So I think all of these government initiatives are coming at exactly the wrong time. I don't even think they would be justified even in good times, but certainly not now when businesses are really, really struggling at this time. With all the pressures that Lynn mentions, especially COVID, I think this is exactly the wrong time to add even more complexity and cost. All right. Uh, It's great to have a better understanding of how the triple CFA has affected non-bank financial institutions and their customers. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lynn. Thanks for the opportunity, Ben. Thanks also to you, Oliver. Thank you. Uh, You can find out more about the Financial Services Federation on the website fsf.org.nz. 
Thank you. To stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.